Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? If you're not listening to Hacking Your ADHD with Will Curb or ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, you're missing out on two incredible ADHD resources. In Hacking Your ADHD, Will Curb explores ways that you can work with your ADHD brain to do more of the things that you want to do. And of course, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers is a show designed for adults with really good intentions, but slightly wandering attention. Both shows are filled with tips and tricks, new ideas, and new perspectives to help you better manage your ADHD. And speaking of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network, Eric, Will, and I will be doing the next ADHD Rewired Q&A this Tuesday, December 10th at 1.30 Eastern. It's an event that takes place online, and you are more than welcome to come and bring as many cues as you may have. We'll be bringing the A's. Go to ADHDrewired.com events to register. And of course, the best way to support this show is by sharing it with others. So let your friends know, let your families know. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Heck, throw it up on Snapchat. And also, don't forget to throw up that five-star rating and review on iTunes. In fact, take a second and do it now. We'll wait. Assuming you hit the pause button. Welcome to ADHD Essentials. Today, we're talking to Caroline McGuire. Caroline is an ADHD and social skills expert who has written a book called Why Will No One Play With Me? It's a book about helping our kids develop friendships and navigate the waters of social interaction. It is filled with great information and practical tips. In today's episode, Caroline and I discuss the ideas and strategies of her book. We talk about the role executive function and direct instruction play in developing social skills, what it means to read the room and why it's important, the problematic stories we tell ourselves, and the spectrum of silly. All right, let's get rolling. My name is Caroline McGuire, and I wrote a book called Why Will No One Play With Me? It just came out a month ago, and I am an ADHD coach. I do social skills coaching. I am the founder of the Fundamentals of ADHD Coaching program at the ADD Coach Academy, and I have a master's degree from Lesley University. It's in early childhood development and education, but it's, it's really all about executive functions and the management system of the brain. I've been doing this a really long time, and I'm really excited to share with parents this method of coaching their kid. And you kind of helped me get onto the, I guess, the national stage in ADHD, because I don't even know how many years ago at this point. I went to the ADHD Coaches Organization conference, presented the Wall of Awful at that conference, and you were really my cheerleader. You were really in my corner. We connected because we're both from Massachusetts. You were my cheerleader at that conference, and I really appreciate you helping me feel like I had arrived and that like I belonged there. 
Well, thank you. I'm so glad that I made you feel that way. You had this great concept. I kind of remember the wall of awful in terms of my own childhood academic experience and, you know, wouldn't go back. You could offer me millions of dollars. I would not go back to the fourth grade. And I thought it was great. And then we did some videos together and we had this great time. I don't even know how many years ago it was either, Brendan. I, it, it was a long time ago, it feels like, but it can't be because it wasn't that long ago, but it was a great experience. And I was so, I'm so glad that you've continued on this journey. You helped me feel like I could travel on this journey, and I, I really appreciate that. And I'm really excited to help you continue on your journey and help support this book, because Why Will No One Play With Me is phenomenal. Social interaction, social skills, friendships, that's a topic that I don't spend enough time talking about on this podcast, because there's just a lot of different topics, and you, I don't feel like I spend enough time with any of them. But this one is critical to our kids' success and their feelings of self-worth. And so I really want to I really want to dig into the meat and the content of this. I've read the book. I attended your workshop at the ADHD conference a couple of weeks ago. It, it's just there's so much in here that is amazing. And I want to start with that executive function idea and the role that executive function plays in social skills and 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 friendships. Can you walk us through that a little bit? So executive function is the management system of the brain. It's all the processes in the brain, basically, that control attention, self-regulation, emotional regulation, future thinking, um, organization, all the stuff that affects academics, but it also affects social. And so everything we do socially comes from those processes. And years ago, when Dr. Tom Brown really pioneered and Dr. Russell Barkley, this idea of executive function, I heard them speak. It was around 2005. And when I heard them speak, it was interesting. Other people left that ballroom and said, oh my gosh, this is academics. And I don't know why, but I left that ballroom and I said, oh my God, it's social. And I had a bunch of experiences with kids that led me to know that, that it was really, really needed to write Why Will No One Play With Me. But it started with that understanding that everything we do comes down to those management systems in the brain. It's, it's all our brain. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can blame your brain. I completely agree with you. The role that executive function plays in, in our social interactions is enormous. Everything from our ability to regulate our emotions to our ability to, to take the other person's perspective on things and just that metacognition role of learning from our mistakes and kind of bouncing back and, and coming at things from a new strategy. Are there places where kids with ADHD most commonly trip and fall down as a result of the executive functioning challenges? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's sort of two different types of situations. One situation we talk about a fair amount, not as much as we should, but a fair amount, which is self-regulation is the underlying issue, right? We know what to do. We just don't do it. We're not able. We blurt. We interrupt. And our self-regulation is the issue. Kids who jump everywhere, laugh at the joke too long. But there's another element that's really not talked about a lot. And I think parents out there will relate to this, which is there are some ADHD kids who cannot read the room, who don't read social cues, who aren't paying attention and they don't know what to do. So, you know, there's this misnomer, I feel like, where people 
automatically, especially people who aren't raising these kids and living with these kids, assume it's all self-regulation. But just a huge percentage of our population, they don't know what to do and their self-awareness is really low. That's important because as a parent, we can really get caught up in that can't versus won't cycle. And it doesn't matter. Most of these kids need help and they need direct instruction. There's so much in there that I want to play with. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean when you say read the room? Can you expand that a little bit for our audience? Sure. By read the room, what I mean is scan the situation, look at the context, look at the social cues and what they dictate in terms of expected behavior. And then also, you know, mood is a very intangible thing. But the mood of your teacher, the the mom who's getting upset and you don't notice, that stuff is part of reading the room. And it's really not just a room. It's any social interaction where if I come in and I notice that you're upset about something, I need to look at that and then understand how my behavior should change. Some kids just don't notice the social cues. They don't pay attention to the situation. And they also really don't understand that emotional world of the other person, that the other person matters and that you change based on what's happening around you. They just don't get it. And reading the room requires a little bit of a pause. In order to do that, you can't storm into the room. You can't make an entrance and read the room at the same time. So working with our kids to help them read the room or just read the situation on the basketball court, it really necessitates that we encourage them to pause and process and inhibit some of that impulsivity. Absolutely. I mean, the self-regulation, the impulsivity, that emotional piece, those are all things that keep our kids from reading the room. And the distinction I make is not that that isn't a huge issue. It's really that some people, even if they pause, they still don't get it. And that's where all this direct instruction comes in, because we're either going to teach the kid to pause and to to self-regulate so they can do what they want to do, or we're going to show them that, oh my gosh, there's all these situations where you need to be reading the room. But either way, we have to teach them. They're not getting it on their own. And this is something we can even teach our kids in sort of a playful way, right? I'll go to the mall with my kids and every now and then I'll be like, what do you think that guy's thinking about? What do you think about those two? Are they getting along? What kind of a relationship are they in? Is that a brother and sister, boyfriend, girlfriend? Like what's going on there? And it's really me teaching them to read social cues, but doing it in a fun sort of storytelling, playful way so that in another situation, they can start to apply those skills more effectively. Am I onto something here? Is that a strategy you would recommend? I've been going around talking all over the country. I keep hearing from parents like, oh, the holidays are coming. The holidays are an extremely social time. And you can either grit your teeth and watch your kid from afar. And we've all been there, right? A bunch of parents are shaking your heads right now. And I'm a mom, I understand. And you're watching and it's like this torture. You like can't reach your kid and they're doing something you know is not the right thing to do. 
we can either live through it or we can use them in that gamified way you're describing to say, you know, we're going into this party. Let's all notice everyone who seems agitated, everyone who seems overwhelmed, everyone whose facial expression says they're not having a good time. And let's make it a game because it's a tremendous opportunity. If you go to a mall, God help us all, at this time of year, <laughs> it is a palooza of different emotional situations. And, you know, what I'm always happy about is if I take a kid to a food court and we're, we're reading the room and we're practicing and somebody has like a complete meltdown at Brookstone, I'm like, thank you. Thank you so much. You're <laughs> modeling everything for me. Um, I'm sure that the person having the meltdown doesn't feel that way. But yeah, there's so much in what you're saying where we can use these fun little parent moments to teach. The holiday thing has me heading in a slightly different direction, but still that sort of strategy skill building idea where like the same stuff happens every year, right? So you can go to the holidays and on your drive to grandma's house or whatever, you can say, all right, so what's going to happen? And your kids are probably at first going to be like, what are you talking about? But as long as they've been to enough holidays situations, they can probably eventually get to, maybe with a little coaxing from mom and dad, things like, oh, well, Uncle Joe is probably going to get upset about the turkey being dry because every year Uncle Joe gets upset about the turkey being dry. Or Aunt Gertrude is going to ask mom what she does for a living because Aunt Gertrude asks mom that every year and it's always the same thing. <laughs> Those kinds of scenarios, it's a good strategy to give your kids that in kind of the holiday stuff, but that can carry over to what always happens in English class, what always happens when you play Foursquare on the playground. What are the patterns that repeat themselves that we can start to look for because we've started identifying them as a game with the family? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things, you know, I, I work with ADHD kids on is kids who don't read the room don't read the teacher either. And so the teacher comes in and you and I hear that lecture or like my daughter got this rubric home, which is like a description of a project. And I read this rubric and I thought, this teacher is going to eat us alive. The level <laughs> of detail orientation in this is just, we're, we're in big trouble. And other parents, you, you see that and you tend to be the one who shepherds them through this or points it out. And it's rough because a lot of times our ADHD kids fight us. But this is actually social because we're trying to help them to make guesses and look at that teacher. What is the fact that she cares about font this much tell you, mm -hmm. right? And that's the thing. A lot of times when you have a kid who does not do this easily, they don't notice these details. So what we're trying to do fundamentally is help them to know that that information has meaning and it tells you about people. So I have a thing in Wild Known Play With Me about inventorying people. And I do this because so many of my kids don't read the teacher, don't read the situation. The coach is clear as day to me. You know, there's a coach in my town who says, if you're on time, you're late. And if you're early, you're on time. And he says things like this. I and some of, my more, <laughs> some of my more clueless little ones and even teenagers are like, he's mad at me. I don't know why. And I'm like, well, what did he just say? <laughs> so we're teaching them 
but we're, we're trying to get them to understand that everything people say, everything they do with their body, what they put out in a rubric, it tells you information about them. And that way, you know, you're not going to college with them. So we're trying to teach them so that when they face that professor or that boss, they are able to do this on their own. I'm glad you mentioned that inventory because one of the things that I appreciate the most about this book is that you've got some inventories and questionnaires in here, both to help our kids assess the people around them, but also to help us as parents assess our kids and figure out things like what are their strengths and and a little bit around executive functioning, social skills, and what's going on there so that we can become a little more armed in managing the challenges that our kids facing because we understand our kids better. That is phenomenal as it relates to this book. It's one of the things I'm most excited about. Well, thank you. I'm glad it makes you excited. It makes me happy because it took years off my life. (laughs) I think one of the things is that, you know, kids have different motivations and they're not always my motivation or your motivation. And sometimes they're not even good motivations, but the more we understand how they tick or what's going on, and that's really part of the method of why I'm going to play with me is to use open-ended questions rather than telling them and ask them about their opinion and then get what they are thinking. Because we as parents often think, you know, I know why they don't go to the lunchroom. I know why they're avoiding this. I know why they play video games all day. What my experience is, is when I ask the kid questions, often it isn't anything that any of us thought. It's something totally different. And they have sort of this secret life. And it's not intentional, but they don't tell us all the time. And that brings me back to the second thing I wanted to play with, with what you had said earlier that I said there was a lot in. And that's in the, in the book, you call them problematic parenting stories. And what you mean by that is it's really about assumptions. It's about the stories we as parents tell ourselves about our kids that may or may not be true. You had mentioned earlier that can't versus won't thing. Is it that you can't do it or is it that you won't do it? And if we assume that they can't do it, that's a healthier, better assumption because now we can build a skill. If we assume they won't do it, then our kid's a jerk and that's less useful. Right. So can you play with that a little bit? Can we dig into some of the problematic parenting stories that you've seen and what does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I also want parents to know I'm not a Pollyanna. I know sometimes kids are manipulative. To me, their manipulation is pretty obvious, but let's just say, yeah, it can happen. But I really think that if kids could do it, they would do it. And I think what happens is these kids are challenging. Sometimes they're challenging just because they're so bright and the school system is not the best place for them. Sometimes they're challenging because they're immature. There's a host of reasons, as all of you know. But I think what happens is over time, we start to develop these stories. And part of it is that these kids are baffling. They beg for playdates, but then they don't talk to the playmate when they're there. They ask to play soccer and then they don't interact with anyone on the field or they alienate people. Like there's a bunch of contrasts where you as a parent are like, wait, I don't understand. You begged for this play date. Why are you being this way? (laughs) And so I think what happens is we all do it. I mean, I'm just as guilty as anyone else of you'd start to develop these stories. And I think what happens is kids have their own stories too. 
And we have a story that might be they're being willful, you know, sometimes he does it, sometimes he doesn't. And then they have stories that are like, you know, I'm fine on my own. I'll have friends in high school. It's all you, mom. If only you would go away, I would do my homework. That's one I hear a lot, by the way. And the problem with it all is that if we don't move past the story, the story affects our whole interaction. And so instead of seeing that this kid just can't read the room, they mean to, they just don't read social cues. The story makes us look at that, you know, Thanksgiving or play date or whatever we're watching and say, oh my gosh, he just refuses to try. And then instead of moving forward, we stay stuck. And I love that you went to stories because I think that that's critical. The idea that every kid has a story and that we, we have to know what those stories are that they're telling themselves so that we can help them tell better stories. I know I'm in the middle of trying to crack this nut with my kids because I'm starting to notice that some of their stories are based on assumptions and those stories are not serving them well. They're kind of giving them a little bit more of a negative outlook than they need to have. It's important for us as parents to kind of challenge those stories and, and even frame it that way. Like, what are the stories you're telling yourself? And how do you know that they're true? What's your evidence? You know, I had a girl that I'm working with and she's horribly shy. I mean, paralyzed, anxiety. And the story she's telling herself right now is that if I don't curate everything I say and think about the other person's reaction, they won't like me. So I can't say the truth. I have to say everything that they'd want to hear. And this story is so powerful that I don't even know until we talked about it that she knew it was there. And so that's the thing. I think, you know, I won't put you on the spot, but I'll out myself. You know, I'm ADHD. I grew up with many stories. I, I had all these assumptions about academics and, you know, I'm not a school person. And so I, I totally recognize them because I'm like, oh, yes, there it is, you know? What happens with parents is, too, like sometimes you know the story. And one of the, the goals of Why Will No One Play With Me was to, okay, now you know it, what do you do about it? And to give you a really like yellow brick road of how to address it with a kid in a way that doesn't shame them or shut them down. All out myself, a story I'm telling myself right now is that I'm bad at email, which isn't true because when I do it, it goes fine. But that story is making it really hard for me to start. And so I'm not bad at emailing. I'm bad at starting emailing and I need to navigate that. So just to share the outing, the self outing. But for our kids, I completely see what you're saying where sometimes they don't even know that that's a story that they're telling, they're telling themselves. And when it comes to making friends, that can make things harder because if they feel like they can't say anything unless it's perfect and exactly what this kid wants to hear, now that run, runs into other stuff like, but I'm not supposed to lie, but I'm also trying to tell this person stuff they want to hear. So maybe I just won't say anything. When I describe the stories, it, when I give a talk, I always say it is the Mount Everest you have to move. If you go right to skill building, if you go right to telling, and you don't deal with this story, it's like the, uh, the force field. They're, it's going to bounce off of them, and it's not going to go through. You know, one of the stories that I've heard a lot lately from kids is that if they don't tell the truth, they're not authentic. 
So they won't ever filter. They won't ever, you know, just not say something. And then they come off as rude. Well, we could go into all kinds of skill building around social skills, but the fact is they don't think they have a problem and they don't think they need it. And they think they're just fine. Thank you very much. And so what happens is parents are maybe even aware of that, but they don't know what to do. And so what I'm trying to help you do with Wild Don't Play With Me is to talk about it with your child and to look at it. And so with my client who who's not talking, I mean, she literally doesn't talk to people. They sit next to her and they try to talk to her and she's so paralyzed. And then they think she's like creepy and weird because I'm talking to you and you're not talking back. Like, I mean, I'm not trying to laugh. It's just, you know, she and I have had some laughs about it where, you know, the fact is that it doesn't serve her and her parents see it, but they're like, I don't know what to do. You've got to move that mountain. One of the things you're doing with Why Will No One Play With Me is a little bit of helping parents figure out how to be coaches. Absolutely. That's a piece of this book is talking about how you're a natural coach. You can help your kid. Can you go into a little bit of what that means? So the original idea for this book was that I wanted to give parents this wonderful method that I've been trained in and give them this opportunity to coach their kid but also teach them to be a guide, not a puppeteer, you know, because a football coach doesn't, you know, when someone's messing up, they don't actually go in the game and take over and, you know, do the play for them. They're a guide and they allow them to practice and they allow them to play in the game and they allow them to mess up. And with parenting nowadays, that's a hard thing. The other thing is I wanted to give parents a way to communicate and being a coach means not only that you're a guide, but also that you use these open-ended questions. And so instead of saying, you always do this, why do you do this? You're like, what's hard about this for you? And you get a lot more information and it takes time sometimes, but you have more of that movement and more of a collaborative partnership. You're changing the style of questions. And I love that because I'm wrapping up my parent coaching groups right now. And this is exactly the stuff we're talking about in the last week. We talk about questions and the critical shift that you're making there. That's one of the first things I talk about as I wrap up my groups is the difference between asking a why question and asking a what or a how question, because the why questions make us feel defensive. And now we're answering from a place of trying to preserve our ego or trying to explain how we didn't do something that was bad. And a why or how question is really more of a problem-solving question and necessitates some deeper thinking and allows us to think critically instead of emotionally. That's enormous. That by itself is worth the price of this book. <laughs> and by price, I mean both the time it takes to read and whatever it costs. <laughs> and, <laughs> and by the way, listeners, I should point out, this book is available on Audible. So if you're not a big reader, you don't need to be a big reader. Pop this bad boy on your phone. And when you're driving somewhere, like, I don't know, maybe you're visiting relatives over the holidays. You can listen to it as you travel, as you drive to work and, and get the same content without necessarily having to devote the time to reading the physical book and knowing who my listeners are and knowing that they're at least marginally inclined to listen to things since they listen to this podcast. I want to make sure they know it's available that way. And I know because I have it in both versions. 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, but but I, I mean, I would say this, Brendan, too. I'm dyslexic and I listen to podcasts all day long and I listen to books all day long um, when I'm working at my desk. And it was funny because they wanted me to do the audio book and I was like, who, what? But it does have a PDF of a lot of the lessons. So it comes with that. And if you are a person who's not going to read the book, then get the audiobook because honestly, I am a person who I always say I read for book club, but really between us and the many, many people listening, I actually am listening. I never actually read it. <laughs> Fun fact, your brain doesn't know the difference. Yes, true. And literally your brain processes the information in the same way. So listening counts as reading for all the people who want to pretend it doesn't. You're wrong. And I know because I interviewed... <laughs> I had the folks from Commonwealth Learning Center on not that long ago and we talked about it. So absolutely listen to that audio audible recording. Um, but I do want to point one thing out for those of you who, who get the audible, you might want to get the, the book book too, because there's some phenomenal images in here as well that really help to illustrate the concepts in the book remarkably effectively and much faster then you're ever going to process it listening or reading. There's things about the kinds of friendships that we have, the stages of friendship, as well as, and I'm literally flipping through the book right now, you've got a whole chart about like a public relations campaign because your kid's brand might be suffering. And by the way, I love that concept of, it's not that your kid's reputation is bad, it's that their brand is suffering and how do we <laughs> rebrand them? And kids get it, Brendan, because they know so much about branding. And so, you know, it's funny because 20 years ago, 15 years ago, when I started doing this, kids didn't know as much. But now I just use the word brand and immediately, I don't know what this says about kids today, but they immediately know. And I'm glad you like the visuals. The visuals also serve another purpose I want to highlight. I created the visuals not only for little kids. Uh, and by the way, my cousin Julie did them and she's a brilliant graphic artist also created them because children on the autism spectrum, as you know, need that visual underpinning. And another thing we don't talk about enough in the ADHD community is that there is an overlap. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of kids that I see who have formerly known as Asperger's syndrome and ADHD. If your child has that particular learning style or just they're highly visual, that is why I did so many visuals. The other thing is with teenagers, if they think they're just too cool and the visuals will make them skittish or say, oh, this is babyish, then just don't show them to them. I use them with teenagers a lot, but I do have some who are, you know, too, too cool. And I just, you know, I just put them away then. The format of this book, and y'all know I was an English teacher, so I'm like a dork when it comes to this stuff. What my listeners might not know is that I was also a comic book major in college. So when it comes to visual stuff, like I know my stuff. And one of the other formatting elements of this book that I also love is you've got like grayed out boxes to just to offset some concepts and to have them stand out on their own. And one of the things that I like about that so much is that I have ADHD and I suck at reading a book cover to cover. I have a tendency to flip around and jump and dance and the visuals, the grayed out pages that they're not gray that you can't read them. It's just the background is gray and there's text on there you can read. But the fact that the visual interaction for me shifts and changes 
encourages me to engage it with this book in a different way. And it allows me to feel more comfortable dancing through the pages and jumping from here to there. And it, it just made it a joy for me to read because one of my challenges, just because of my level of education and my level of expertise and stuff, is that a lot of these books are hard for me to start because I'm reading stuff and I'm like, yep, I know, yep, I know, yep, I know. And it's not till like chapter three, four, five that I finally get to content that is new to me. Your book kind of welcomed me wherever I flipped it open to. Oh, you know, originally I wanted this to be a workbook. And there were some definite logistical issues with that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, big publishers want a hardback to come out. I will tell you a funny story. I actually um, am the first time in Hachette history, which is the second biggest publisher in America. There were so many visuals and there was so much of those little boxes that we actually crashed the system. <laughs> <laughs> because um uh you know i was like waiting for them to send it to some press people and i was like you guys like this isn't like april i'm like come on i told them it was coming and they're like well we have a problem <laughs> or you have a problem so um yeah and and one of the things too is that that's <laughs> the most adhd thing i've ever heard <laughs> yeah, for publishing a book <laughs> And you know, one of the things too that I'm glad you said that about is too, is that um, I, I know, and actually someone came up to me at the international conference, Brendan, and said, tell people the index is really good. And I was like, okay, thank you. And I have no idea who this person was. I was like, who are you? But I think one of the things I wanted and I knew because of the audience is any child who's left out. But the fact is I knew that many, many people with ADHD would be reading it. You know, I do that too. I flip around in a book. I go from place to place. And I knew that people would do that. So I'm glad that it welcomes you because that was my intention was that anywhere you flip open, because I know people do that. I have a friend who reads the last page of a mystery novel first. A <laughs> <laughs> little bit of and, an anxiety and, issue with that friend, I'm assuming. <laughs> I don't know. She also was saying that she was going to send Why Will No One Play With Me to anyone in our town who really needs this book. And I literally was like, look in my eyes. You're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And listeners, she's not lying. The index is solid. The appendices are good too. Sticky note those bad boys so that you use them. For real. Like when you get the book, bust out some sticky notes. Mark, index begin. Put the sticky note down at the start of the index. Go to the end of the index, write down index ends, sticky note at the end, do the same thing for the appendices. And then you're more likely to interact with those parts of the book, which is important. And I, I say that because I have my clients do that all the time. Like my, I have grad students that I work with who are like, I never used the index until you gave me that strategy. So that's completely worthwhile. And I do want to I do want to play with one more concept from the book before we bring this into a in for a landing. And that is the, the notion of sort of like the spectrum of silly and how like kids are kind of balanced. And when you got the ADHD, or even if you don't, you're just having some emotional regulation issues. Sometimes kids get silly and then really silly and then kind of out of control silly. And how does that play out for the people witnessing this behavior? Yeah. You know, there's an exercise in the book called Silly Goofy Scale. And part of it is that I would always have parents tell me, you know, the joke goes on too long, or they don't land the story, or they don't tell a tight story, or 
you know, their friends have stopped being that sort of fourth, fifth grade level of silly, and they're still super silly, and they're like 14 years old. And so what ends up happening is that other kids get kind of done with it, and it sets you apart in terms of your humor and your interests. And the feedback that these kids often get is that their friends want them at some point during this silly, goofy behavior to kind of self-regulate themselves back down. And our kids don't do that. Mm-hmm. I have included a way to teach kids to be less silly, goofy, to recognize when it's too much, and then to actually simulate teaching them how to self-regulate by getting them revved up and then teaching them to move themselves back down into calm. Because the best way to learn is through experience. And so I take kids into my backyard. They run around. It depends on the parent's preference, but sometimes we use Nerf guns and we use footballs and we get goofy. And then I teach them, and this is all in the book, how to downregulate because I'm not going to be at school with them. So I have to, I have to simulate the experience. I'm not going to be there when they're on the playground, just goofy and silly and going too far. And just in case we haven't sold this book enough to people, I want to I want to play with one final concept that I want to share with the listeners. And that is for a lot of us, ADHD or no, one of the hardest parts of our kids making friends is that it exposes us to new parents and new adults, depending on the age of our kids. And it can be hard for us in those situations of meeting the boyfriend's parents or the girlfriend's parents or going on a play date with your seven-year-old and you have to be there because they're seven around what do I do with these new parents that I'm just meeting and how do I navigate those waters? Y'all, this is a book about friendships and it applies to adults too. So if you struggle with that side of social interaction, you can steal stuff from this book just like you can give it to your kids. And a solid example of that is your formula for moving from small talk to conversations and that you kind of start with hi, and then you think about how the how do I know this person, right? And then situation-based questions. How are they similar or different from someone else I know? So maybe I can get some clues about what to do with the conversation there. Think about shared experiences you've had with this person, whether actually in that moment or you both happen to have been to Disney. And then listening for cues about them and consulting our social databases, Facebook, Instagram, ladies and gentlemen, to go deeper into that conversation. I love that. And I, and I love the fact that there are absolutely parts of this book that can apply to adult friendships, just like they can apply to childhood friendships. Thank you. I mean, the next book will definitely be about adult friendships if, you know, if I survive this one. But <laughs> um, I invented that because I had so many inattentive kids, introverted kids who were teenagers. And, you know, we can't facilitate conversations for our teenagers, and they just could not move from small talk to a real conversation. And so I took many a jog where I was like trying to crack that. When I gave them this cheat sheet that's in the book, you know, you would think a teenager would say, you're handing me a sheet and you're role playing this with me. But because this is so hard for some kids, and by kids, I mean teenagers, they were like so happy. And I'll never forget, I had a girl who's inattentive, really struggled with this. And after we were meeting, she was going to a bowling alley 
to meet with a group of kids over a study project. It was like her worst nightmare. <laughs> and so just giving her these steps, she knew she could carry them with her. And yeah, we worked on it and we worked on making it flow and everything later on, but it gave her something to hold on to for that, you know, great bowling alley meeting. And it went much better than ever before. So I really like, I can't stress enough to you. If you have a kid who's really struggling with the small talk stuff, there's a ton in why will no one play with me. They can carry it with them. Awesome. And uh, just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with the audience? Anything can change. You are your child's original teacher. You taught them to walk. You taught them to ride a bike. You are the best person to do this. I know sometimes kids are resistant, but you are still the most invested person in their lives. If you go to carolinemaguireauthor.com, there are now videos of what this looks like. And some of the kids in the videos, by the way, are not into this. They are resistant. They do not love being with me. <laughs> so I just, I want to stress, like, you can do this and it is incredibly important and it's a gift you can give your child. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.